the blue screen will probably time out and go away in a few minutes here, but um, this is just one of those boring talking head papers, so sorry about that. Um, well, should intelligent design be taught in public schools is the question here, but before I start to answer that, I want to step back and define some terms, particularly here to start with, what do you mean by intelligent design? It's a very boring way to start, but defining terms, I think, is quite important in this context. In its simplest form, the theory of intelligent design states that some natural phenomena are best explained by an intelligent cause because in our experience, intelligence is the most reasonable cause for their informational properties. More specifically, intelligent design theory proposes that the extreme complexity observed in living structures and processes is best explained by an intelligent cause rather than by unguided laws and random events. While we may possibly infer design from empirical data in biology, the data do not tell us, A, who the designer is, B, whether that design is good or bad or even optimal, or C, how the designer influenced the physical world to impart design on it. Answering questions about who the designer is or how good or bad the designs are requires input from more disciplines than the natural sciences. That third question, how the designer exerted his, her, or its influence, seems open to study through the historical and natural sciences. Thus, ID theory is not necessarily creationist, common misrepresentation uh, of it, or even theistic, or opposed to Darwinian mechanisms. Even the seeding of the early Earth by space aliens fits under the umbrella of intelligent design. Uh, if you saw the movie Expel, that's even a possibility that Dawkins uh, mentions. Specific conclusions about the nature of the designer are left to the individual as they call upon data that are beyond the scope of the sciences. The goal of ID is simply to detect mere design in a reliable manner. The key challenge for ID is to distinguish between apparent design and agent design. In forensics, this would be deciding between accidental death versus murder. In meteorology, this would be comparing snowflake crystal patterns with artwork, for example. In order to establish the existence of agent design in nature, the research strategy of ID theorists has been to propose clear examples where, apparently clear examples, where unguided gradualistic mechanisms seem incapable of producing the final product. The bacterial flagellum is a famous example of that. More generally, ID theorists argue that a designed view of nature presents a more robust and meaningful approach to the life sciences than does a chaotic, glorious accident, materialist approach. It's also important for us to define the term evolution. Evolution is much more than simple change over time or small changes arising in a population. That's often called microevolution. This level of adaptability is not controversial today. In fact, this is, the universe, this is universally recognized as Darwin and Wallace's insight, brilliant insight into the workings of nature. Our concern here is with Darwinism, or secular macroevolution, which is the unguided, random, undirected, accidental, and purposeless process through which organisms develop dramatic increases in complexity and acquire advanced features over time. To quote the anthropologist Jeff McKee, quote, surprising things happen due to the niggling, mischievous, 
and capricious nature of three very important components of evolution, chance, coincidence, and chaos. You and I are among these products. So before we can answer the question, should ID be taught in public schools, we need to ask, well, what is being taught there now? And I would argue it is this no-design model of macroevolution. To cite some high school biology textbooks here, I have quotations from them. Um, this is uh, Miller and Levine's biology. Quote, evolution works without either plan or purpose. Then they emphasize evolution is random and undirected. Uh, Raven and Johnson biology. Some even saw in the record of horse evolution evidence for a progressive guiding force consistently pushing evolution to move in a single direction. We now know that such views are misguided. Levine and Miller's biology, Discovering Life, quote, Darwin knew that accepting his theory required believing in philosophical materialism, the conviction that matter is the stuff of all existence, that all mental and spiritual phenomena are its byproducts. Darwinian evolution was not only purposeless, but also heartless, a process in which the rigors of nature ruthlessly eliminate the unfit. Suddenly, humanity was reduced to just one more species in a world that cared nothing for us. The great human mind was no more than a mass of evolving neurons. Worst of all, there was no divine plan to guide us. Um, quoting from Gutmann's uh, biology, just by chance, a wonderful diversity of life is, has developed during the billions of years in which organisms have been evolving on Earth. Then finally, Curtis and Barnes' invitation to biology. It is difficult to avoid the speculation that Darwin, as has been the case with others, found the implications of his theory difficult to confront. The real difficulty in accepting Darwin's theory has always been that it seems to diminish our significance. Earlier, astronomy had made it clear that the Earth was not the center of the universe or even of our own solar system. Now the new biology asked us to accept the proposition, like all other organisms, that we too are the products of a random process that, as far as science can show, we are not created for any special purpose or as part of any universal design. So we see that a number of public school textbooks currently teach evolution with an unguided, no-design bias. And thus, it's important to note that those who do advocate the teaching of ID are responding to an existing bias in the curriculum. For example, the current problems in Kansas stem from a 2001 change in the state science standards where the definition of science is modified to say that, quote, science seeks natural explanations. Thus, ID advocates are not trying to force their views on unsuspecting teachers and children, but to respond to what they perceive as an existing viewpoint error in the curriculum. The problem here is more than a simple question of facts and evidence. The textbooks are explicitly ruling out design, any agent-guided process, most forms of theistic evolution as a possible explanation of these facts and evidence. If you think that design exists or that things have been guided, you're just naive. You're only seeing the illusion of apparent design. This, we are told, is what science shows. So thus, if we ask, uh, should intelligent design be taught in public schools, we discover that it already is. 
students are taught that it's the wrong answer through the terms unguided, random, undirected, purposeless. Now, true intelligent design is not mentioned explicitly, but by inserting all of the uns, the intent to teach student that the design elephant in the room is only an illusion seems fairly obvious. So how do we remedy this situation? Even atheist philosophers like Michael Roos observed that science can function as a secular religion when it starts making metaphysical claims like these about our origin, purpose, and significance. In fact, Roos has recently noted that in the United States, Darwinism may pose a First Amendment problem because if public schools teach an atheistic set of religious values under the guise of what science shows, how can other religious interpretations of the scientific data be excluded? So how should we teach these subjects? Some would argue that evolution can be taught without these teleological implications. Let's leave evolution to the simple observations of increasing complexity over time and of organisms adapting to a changing environment. As Roos suggests, let's teach science and nothing more. But in practice, this is difficult to do because the compare and contrast pedagogy is such a common one to use. One needs something to compare a naturalistic process with, so very often design is brought in as the evil twin, if you will. Historically, the question has often been between an unguided form of evolution versus design. In fact, that's what Darwin himself argues over 100 times in The Origin of Species. So historically, there's a long track record with this. Even in today's more secular culture, discussions are still framed in this manner. Darwinism has to be correct because it is the only naturalistic mechanism that we know of. So how do we remedy this situation? One approach would be to spend more time discussing the philosophy and the limits of science as part of the science curriculum. Generally, these topics are covered in one or two paragraphs in the introductory chapter and are soon forgotten. Uh, but what would a more extended treatment convey? That science is religiously neutral? Well, while it may be popular and politically correct to argue that modern science is worldview neutral, this isn't the way that it functions in many cases. Some argue that all scientific explanations today must be strictly naturalistic, giving physical causes for all physical effects. And if this is the case, and if the sciences are supposed to be our best path to truth, then all that we will find at the end of its road are physical effect answers. So this form of science is not religiously neutral, because if physical effects can really explain everything, then why bother with religion at all? So stating the limits and goals of science clearly, the disclaimer approach, I think would be very valuable if it could be worded appropriately. Does science seek truth or simply propose natural explanations for phenomena? A clarification like this, however, proposes a, poses a threat to science as a cultural authority because Joe Lehman can tell the difference between a definition that would say science seeks natural explanations and will never evoke God versus science seeks a correct understanding of nature. However, the goals of science do merit a critical discussion. 
And my concern in this is, is over who's best qualified to assess the goals and the limits of science and how often it should be covered in the curriculum as an optional sidebar seen once in seventh grade or stated clearly at the beginning of every K through 12 science class on the opposite extreme. A bad precedent that I can think of for this latter option is Carl Sagan's introduction to every Cosmos episode where he said, you know, the universe is, uh, sorry, the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. Unfortunately, this shows how scientists can elegantly and inappropriately mix their physics with their metaphysics. Well, one danger with the disclaimer approach is to only talk about the limits and goals of science when origins-related issues come up because the limitations of empiricism and inference are inherent in the scientific method itself. One never gets enough data. One never actually sees an inference, like the conservation of momentum. One just gets data that are very close approximation to it. These systemic limitations are problematic in many areas beyond origins issues. Global warming, drug side effects, or convincing your PhD thesis committee that your research is really significant. Metaphysical issues aside, it's important to stress repeatedly the limitations and tentativeness of the sciences while still recognizing that these disciplines have given us an incredible vista of knowledge and insight about the world in which we live. Another approach might be to keep public science education focused on the how things work questions instead of on the how things originated aspect of science. This avoids the how things originated naturalistically problem, which is where most of the tension arises. There's certainly a huge difference in the level of controversy between teaching algebra, <coughs> calculus, chemistry, compared with teaching evolutionary biology. If educators are seeking a monolithic national curriculum, I'm not all that sure that this is a good idea, then we need to find a common denominator somewhere. So by keeping science focused on how things work, there's still plenty enough to cover in the classroom. A third approach that many advocate is a teach the controversy approach. The idea here is to present fairly both the strengths and weaknesses of neo-Darwinism. This approach does not mention alternative theories like ID, but would simply focus on the scientific support for and then critiques of neo-Darwinism. Advocates of this view argue that it builds critical thinking skills and fosters academic freedom, while detractors respond that there's no controversy among biologists about the major points of Darwinism, so amplifying minor research problems to the point that students question the entire paradigm is inappropriate. Well, much more can be said on this approach, but giving faculty and students the freedom to challenge reigning paradigms in the sciences I think is something that scientists themselves should, should welcome because this is one reason why Aristotle is no longer taught in the science classes. Education quickly turns into indoctrination and propaganda unless one has the right to question accepted models. And historically, it also reflects the main approach that scientists themselves use in acquiring new knowledge, weighing which of several competing theories offers the best explanation. The main problem with this approach, though, is that it can be highly teacher-dependent. However balanced a textbook presentation might be written, the personal views of the teacher in most cases will leak through. And, of course, they already do already because I'm a teacher, I'm human. Many of you are teachers. You realize that it's tough to keep your views 
on a subject from influencing your treatment of the material. However, having the textbook officially mention that there are observations in nature that macroevolution cannot yet explain does open the subject to the limits and goals of science and to the adequacy of no design explanations. So perhaps this would be a valuable thing to do despite possible teacher bias. Fourth approach is to teach ID along with standard Darwinian explanations. And in one sense, it would make sense to teach design as a direct antidote to the no design message, but this direct approach has a major problem. Bringing ID into public schools makes the theory a political hot potato and renders the efforts uh, and hinders the efforts of scientists to do ID-related research. It's hard enough to introduce new, new models in science as it stands. Adding this public and political dimension makes it a much more difficult challenge. Every ID theorist that I know would prefer that ID be advanced by scientific debate rather than by politicians or school boards. However, the current problem, though, is that design is now explicitly ruled out through the dysteleological wording that's used to describe the macroevolutionary process. So it's therefore understandable that the former Dover School Board and other lay groups wanted to bring ID to the attention of students as an alternative to this dysteleology. What's unfortunate is that this was done in such a poor manner, and it's also unfortunate that their opponents, who really do see science as a, as a secular religion, were so powerful. Well, let me finally answer the question, okay, should intelligent design be taught in public schools? I would say no and yes. <laughs> ID currently is too politicized to require in public school curricula. The biological community would need to grant it a perhaps grudging measure of respect like the anthropic principle has gained in astrophysics before it could really go in. So, but it's one thing not to require it. It's quite another thing to exclude intelligent design if an individual teacher or student wants to bring it up. Viewpoint exclusion, often done by labeling ID as religious or not as scientific theory, smacks too much of censorship, perhaps a bit of hypocrisy too, because no design Darwinism is itself a religious viewpoint. My biggest concern is how to respond to this not too subliminal metaphysical message that's now packaged in the textbooks. Science shows us that there is no designer, and that physical causes alone are a sufficient reason for us to be here. Science shows us that we are just the end result of a long series of lucky accidents. This, I think, is going far beyond what the facts and evidence can reasonably tell us, and that constitutes an abuse of science to promote a secular religion. Some would suggest that the simplest and safest solution to this issue is to divide the science curriculum between this how things work world of science and the how things originated issues. We could keep adaptation and microevolution in biology classes and let naturalistic macroevolution, intelligent design, and the flying spaghetti monster fight it out in philosophy and religion classes. Unfortunately, a separation between how things work and how things originated has been ruled unconstitutional in a number of Supreme Court cases. And in practice, they're not as easy to separate as they seem. Um, because how things originated thinking is now so embedded in modern biology, it is something that students really need to learn about and to wrestle with. 
I think, though, that it's reasonable for us to advocate it that it be taught objectively and fairly how things originated questions in a manner similar to how the major world religions are treated in public school history classes. There, the historical facts about a religion can be taught and discussed in public school setting as long as no particular religion is advocated. Students never read that history shows how religion X is superior to religion Y or are taught that history shows that religion Z is false, while history shows that religion W is true. Bringing a neutral, nonpartisan approach to the biology classroom on origins issues would be significant. I think this is where a teach the controversy pedagogy might be helpful, as is this ongoing discussion of the limits and goals of science. Using the model of history instruction, I think it's possible to bring a measure of religious neutrality to the science curriculum, and this would do much to diffuse the tension over these issues in the public schools. While I was preparing for this paper, it struck me that one reason we have problems in the K through 12 world is because the thinking that smart people do not believe in God has become entrenched in a higher level of public schools, the modern publicly funded university. Whenever and wherever public funds support the teaching of a particular religious viewpoint, the members of a free society need to be concerned. But from freshman college classes to the gatekeepers of doctoral programs to the tenure process, there's many effective viewpoint filters in place to ensure that the next generation of university scholars has the same religious perspective as their current mentors. And I should add current materialistic mentors. So what's the solution at the university level? Well, one cannot legislate the attitudes of a discipline, but this is something that university scholars and educators themselves should really seek to correct. Where have personal agendas and religious viewpoints shaped or blinded our fields? What's the legitimate range of interpretation that we should tolerate from other colleagues and allow to be taught? In particular, can biology dismiss the long-standing problem of teleology in nature by silencing those who suggest that it is not a mirage? As a scientist myself, and in particular biophysicist, I find an interesting difference between my two fields, because in physics, I guess we learned our worldview lesson back with the death of Newtonian determinism. And yes, there's a majority view about how one should understand quantum mechanics, there's quite a range of interpretations that are accepted or tolerated today. Some of these interpretations even include Eastern mystical notions of a world consciousness or particle consciousness. In biology, however, any perceived deviation from the single no-design materialistic mantra often seems to be grounds to be shown the door. So my hope is that the next generation of biologists in particular they come to realize that this no-design materialistic perspective, which Darwin and Huxley brought into the discipline and which carried the day in the 19th and 20th centuries because of its political value, if you look at the history of this, and its appeal to personal libertarianism, those were the dominating threads more than it being inherent in the data themselves. At some level of biological complexity, I would argue that the mechanisms inside even the simplest cell keep showing deeper and richer levels of it, 
researchers may begin to wonder why no design thinking ever became popular at all. But in the meantime, we should work to see that science education and the progress of science itself is not stifled by a single metaphysical perspective, especially one that functions for many people as a secular religion. Thank you. Yeah, not a question, but a comment. I, I, would, I, would, I would agree with you uh, in the sense that, you know, a greater awareness of where is philosophy coming in to the facts and data and conclusions um, is, is one of the critical things in, well, especially in this area of science education. So that kind of summarizes your point. Yeah. Okay. John, I, I would suggest that you're misreading those those are not metaphysical at all, that they're physical. And that, um, I mean, as I've read Miller and uh, Curtis, uh, those, are, those are statements about where mutations occur and what the pattern of mutations occur, where, whether the organism is planning ahead for uh, evolution, whether adaptations are something that the the organism thinks about, and, 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 and all those things, I think, in evolutionary theory are, are physical claims, they're, and, and they're not saying anything about the, the role of God in, well, in those statements. Those are, those are purely biological statements about what the organism knows or doesn't know ahead of time in, in the process. Well, worst of all, there was no divine plan to guide us. Well, okay. You know, I mean, that was um, Levine and Miller biology. That was the, the one authored by Levine. Did that one get taken out at some point? I'm not, it probably has. But again. But again, my point is, you know, if you go back 10 years, you are seeing statements like this. And there are still ones out there. Levine has, you know, Miller's pulled his. There are still things out there. But, but, but you can read those, a lot of those, what sound like, mm -hmm. you know, purposeless, chanceless, or, or chance and, and uh, without plan and foresight, as 
I think it's very possible to read those as purely biological statements with, with no claim at all for, for the ultimacy of those positions. I'll let this discussion go on a little bit later.